0: Well, good morning. So you might notice that we've uh, started to add a little um, carpet here, a little extra carpet, so that I don't trip. Because if you noticed, I've, this is my fourth time preaching here, and um, I tend to wander. And so I, um, they've graciously given me something so that I don't trip and, and hurt myself. So uh, praise God for that. <laughs> Let's read these words from Psalm 150. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him for the sound, with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and the dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe praise him with the clash of symbols, praise him with resounding symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well In this very final psalm, not the final psalm that we 're going to be working through this summer, but the final psalm of the whole Psalter, the writer goes to this pure, untarnished, un, uh, you know just unadulterated praise, just like that song that we just sang, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come It is just this this total place of adoration there's no nothing about our worldly troubles our struggles with our enemies or their or our trials it is holy and focused on god and his greatness his love his power the only place that we the only piece that we play in this is ultimately our response praise him praise him over and over again and you thought hill song was repetitive just read this song a few times so this being the last Psalm in the Psalter, in it's not coincidental. It was an intentional choice by the people of God to think on what it is to live a life of praise. But I want us to consider, really before we go any further, what this actually looks like, because it's really easy just to have a bunch of like theological platitudes and and, and vague generalities about what this actually looks like, to live a life of surrender and praise to God. Because I, I want us to consider what this tangibly means for our lives, not just when we get together and sing, which is beautiful, but when we leave this place and go about our week together. Especially if you're here and you are a newer believer or you're still checking things out um, and you're not quite sure why millions or billions of Christians gather every weekend and sing. Um, If that's you this morning, you're in okay company because we can admit this morning that it actually is a little weird. Can we just say, yeah, it's a little weird that we get together week by week and we sing. Like, I don't know any other context in which we do that. Maybe if you go to a concert, maybe if you're like the Von Trapp family and you just go around singing wherever you go. Um, maybe if you're super into mu- musicals, you just break out into song. I, I don't know. But it-, it is not the norm for the majority of the world that we get together weekly and just have a, have a little sing song. You see, the people of God have been a singing people for literally millennia. And there is more to it than just paying lip service to a, an, an insecure deity who kind of needs the praise. That's what some people say, They're like, oh, that's kind of a critique of, uh, of Christianity and, and uh, kind of the Judeo-Christian tradition where they say, oh, well, you just go and sing songs to this God that, that needs your praise because he's insecure. And I'm like, whoa, that, that is not what's going on here. That is not what's going on here. God is self-sufficient. He does not need our praise. Let me say that again. God is self-sufficient. God does not need our praise. God says so himself in the Psalms and other parts of the prophets. So what are we left with then? A life of praise, a life of singing to God is ultimately about transforming us. We move toward the things that we worship, do we not? We move toward those things. That's true of money. If you worship money, you will move toward the things that will gain you more money. If you worship power, you will move toward the things that will gain you more power. If you worship sex, if you worship material possessions, whatever that is for you, you will move on that path. And so to be continually formed in the image of God, we continually must praise God. And specifically when we sing, it does something really profound and unique in our brains. That the actual singing of a melody with words directed to God, it becomes deeply impressed upon our minds. In fact, our neurological pathways are changed when we do this. Our hearts are changed when we do this. They are forming us and they're shaping us. Here's just one example of, of how this actually practically can play itself out. Five years ago, uh, my wife Lindsay and I, we were um, trying to have a baby. We were trying to get pregnant. And in the fall of 2014, right after months of trying, we were, um, we were able to um, conceive, but at the time, uh, around week 11 or week 12, I can't remember exactly, uh, by the time that rolled around, just as we were starting to tell everyone, we were very excited about all of this. It was a, this beautiful moment that we were just really thrilled about. There were some complications and Lindsay ended up miscarrying. And this is not a unique experience, you know, like there, there are millions of miscarriages every year, but it is still this painful and just awful experience. And we have this very... Um, unique moment that that Lindsay and I recall very regularly, where we were sitting in the hospital triage room, not even like a full room, just with one with a little curtain around it, and we're sitting there upon hearing this news, and we're weeping together, and we're holding one another, and we're sobbing, and we start to quietly sing these words. Christ alone, cornerstone, Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Why in that moment did we do that? Because the songs that we sing shape us. And in that moment of deep sadness, we chose to praise. It wasn't easy, but I can look back on that moment and recognize both the deep broken moment that that was, the deep sadness, but also the deep beauty that happened in that moment. God met us in that broken place. That is the power of song. It chips away at the little things inside us. It chips away at our self-sufficiency. It chips away at our pride, even. You know, when we gather and we sing together, we have good voices and bad voices and tone-deaf voices. Some of you are like, that's me. That's me. It can raise our spirits when we're lacking hope. It can raise our courage and our faith. And sometimes the words we sing, they're not the words that we're feeling in that moment. They're aspirational words. That we read those words and we're like, I'm not there right now, but I want to be there. So I'm going to sing these words and and just pray in faith that God is going to get me there. God is going to bring me there. So I hope that you're getting just a small glimmer into the transformative power of the psalms and of ultimately um, the songs that we sing week in and week out. And God knew all about this. God wired us this way that we can learn and be formed and be changed by something as simple and even silly as a song. This is why God gave us the psalms as a tool to be formed and molded and changed, to be knit closer to God. So I just hope that this, as we kind of go a little further into this, I hope that this gives us a category for both this, this praise psalm in particular and the songs that we get together and sing week in and week out. It is not rote tradition. It is forming us for a life of praise. Amen? So Psalm 150 here, it gives us some questions to explore on the where, the why, the how, and ultimately the who of praise. And so what I want to do is just take a a little dive into these questions, the first of which is the question of where. Question of where. And the first, uh, the first verse, it talks about this. It says, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Now, the word that appears there, sanctuary, um, it it could be more properly interpreted as in his holiness, in the, in the holiness of God. But practically speaking, it's referring to a gathered place of worship. And, um, this could really mean anything. Over the generations, over the centuries, this has drastically changed. You know, the Israelites, they would gather to worship, initially they would gather to worship around a tabernacle. And later on, in the temple and in, and in synagogues, the early church would often worship only in homes. Or in, eventually, if you go to some areas in like modern-day Turkey, like Cappadocia, there's some beautiful places you can go where, where there, you see the caves where they worshipped. Eventually, though, they were able to build these buildings of worship, and eventually even state-sponsored buildings of worship. Toward the end of the medieval era, and throughout this past millennium, we start seeing these elaborate, ornate, impossibly expensive cathedrals of worship. In the 1700s, as the Methodist movement was getting off the ground, you had people like John Wesley and George Whitfield that were uh, that were um, doing open air preaching. They would just find a field somewhere and they would just invite everyone who wanted to come and hear. And it was like this slightly subversive thing because for the longest time, it was like, no, 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 you only do that in church, in a church building. That is the proper place to do it. And they were really messing with the system and doing it in a public place. In our current era of post-Christendom and globalization, churches gather in gymnasiums, in huts, in shacks, in ornate stone buildings, in massive buildings that look like shopping malls, in stadiums, in homes, in theaters, in cafes, and yes, even in remodeled school buildings. And if you're anything like me, You've probably asked some questions about some of those things. You've had some opinions on some of those things. I remember visiting um, the UK a number of years ago with Lindsay. Uh it was in 2014. Um, and we went to York Minster. It's a beautiful cathedral. Um, probably my favorite building in the world that I've been to thus far. There might be some others maybe if I travel at another point, I'll find another place that kind of meets this criteria and then some, but I just found this place so beautiful and the the bones of it date back to like 300 AD. This was primarily built in kind of the Gothic era, medieval 1100s, 1200s kind of thing. And it is just an incredible piece of architecture. I was just blown away and we walked in and I felt this, this conflicting feeling. I was just a few pictures here. The uh, the first one was mine. These two, I stole off their website. Um, but I had this conflicting feeling where we walked through, and I was just in awe of the beauty. But also, I was like, "Ugh, that was really expensive. Like, even just the upkeep, and you know, they've had several fires over the years, and and it's just like a monumental cost, right?" And I'm like, "Man, is is that like, is that what God was after? Is that did God need that? You know?" But then I started thinking to myself, "Okay, well." The people who designed this, the people who built this, they were doing it because they felt that they wanted to just give some small way of of offering their gifts, their expertise to God. So I'm I'm a little ambivalent. I'm a little double-minded on the whole thing. (laughs) But ultimately, the point is not where we worship, but it's the fact that we do worship. It is not where. It is the fact that we do and when we worship, it's, a, it's like a little meeting place where heaven meets earth which used to be, um, under the Jewish understanding, it was, you'd have to go to a specific place. You'd have to go to the temple and you would have to meet with God there. And the priests, they had this special opportunity where they could, a couple times a year, go behind the Holy of Holies and experience the presence of God in this profound way. And that, ultimately, now is available to us every moment of every day, especially when we gather. It is this beautiful thing where heaven intersects with earth when we gather and pray and sing and pray preach. It's also worth mentioning that this psalm, Psalm 150, was meant, like all psalms, to be written and, or sorry, read and sung together in community. I sometimes hear people say, well, I kind of prefer to worship God when I go for a walk in the forest, and I, I commend that, I, I think that's a beautiful thing, I think that is very valid and worthwhile, but it cannot replace What we did this morning and what we are doing this morning when we gather together, it cannot replace that. It can be a wonderful addition to, but not in place of. Together, we praise God in the sanctuary. We praise him in his mighty heavens. And we do this as a response because of all that God has done. This is the why. We do this as a response to all that God has done. It says these words. Why? Praise him for his acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. There are really two reasons that are highlighted, and, and they're just plainly written there. It's, we're praising God, why? For His great works and for His nature. For God's works and God's nature, we respond to God in praise because of all that He's done and all that He will continually do. And specifically, we praise Him for His saving acts—the ways in which He's brought um, darkness out, uh, brought us out of darkness and into light. The ways in which God has given us new life. The ways in which we've been helped in impossible scenarios where the only way that we could possibly uh, be saved is by the grace of God. This is an exercise in looking back and being thankful for the path that we've been set on because we can see the pain and the heartache that God saved us from if we had gotten what we wanted or what we thought we needed. I've been in lots of scenarios where I'm like, thank you, God, that you did not give me what I asked for. Because it would have been a mess. And when we praise him for his previous faithfulness, we can be assured of his future faithfulness. There are several psalms where the writers just recount the story of of Israel's salvation from the hardships of Egypt, where they go through great detail to remind themselves of what God has done so they can be assured of what God will do again. This, again, is the power of singing. It spiritually forms us through the act to be looking ahead to say, God, I want to be that way again. I want to experience your faithfulness. But we not only praise God for the things that He's done, it's not some transactional kind of thing. We also praise God for simply who He is, God's nature. That we worship a God that is so other, so holy, and yet a God that is accessible and a God that we can call friend. That we worship a God so transcendent and yet a God and a God that is near to us through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. But how could we possibly bring an offering of praiseworthy enough? So we move from the why to the how. If this is the God that we worship, what could we possibly say? What could we possibly sing? What could we possibly do that could ever be enough that would invoke something that God would receive? People have been obsessed with this question of proper worship and what we kind of call in in church circles the the worship wars, and it goes all the way back to um, Genesis chapter (laughs) 4. The first recorded murder was over worship. You have Cain and Abel, they bring an offering to God. Cain brings an offering of, uh, of a harvest, and Abel brings an offering of an animal, God accepts Abel's offering, and God rejects Cain's offering. The, Bi- the Bible is totally silent on why. It does not say, oh, well, you know, this is why this offering wasn't acceptable. I mean, there's a precedence, if you read through, like, Leviticus and some of these other books, there, there is a precedence that God accepts grain offerings and animal offerings. It's all in there, right? Um, so why did God reject Cain's offering? And we're like, ah, this is like, we got to figure this out. And that's kind of the point, that we get to grapple and wrestle with this. That we get to grapple with um, the text where the text doesn't tell us. That's the, the beauty of studying God's word. But I think we do get some glimmers elsewhere. In Psalm 51, King David writes this. He says, Open my lips, Lord. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice. Pay attention. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Amen. Amen. The how is ultimately a posture of. Of what? Our hearts. David was capable of bringing, he was the king of Israel. He was capable of bringing the best of the best offering. He could have brought the best grain offering, the best animal offering free from blemish. But at the end of the day, God is far more interested in what is going on right here in our hearts. And it is from that place that wells up within us that when we, and, we re, and we respond in praise. And the writer of Psalm 150, he brings up the instruments that are used. He says, you know, praise God with the trumpet, with the harp, with the lyre, with the tambourine, with dancing, with stringed instruments, with pipes, with cymbals. If I were to write this today or if we were to rewrite this today, I would add electric guitars and synthesizers. Um, amen. Amen. <laughs> modes and methods will change. They do. They will change from generation to generation, but we praise a God who is unchanging. And that is a beautiful and good thing. And these uh, instruments are, in the most literal sense of the term, they are instruments used, they are tools used to praise God. They are a means that express what is going on inside our hearts. But this list of how we should praise God crescendos at the very last line. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It doesn't say everyone. I want you to note this very, very carefully. It doesn't say let everyone who has breath. That would be very simple. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That was an intentional word choice. Everything with breath. Praise God with all that we have. This is a foretaste of the eschatological or the end times promise that we see in Revelation chapter 5, which says these words. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying... To him who sits on the throne and the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All of creation, not just us, all of creation is worshiping and we're invited to join in. It's like they're already doing it. They're already having a good time praising God through being what they've designed themselves to where God has designed them to be. And we're invited to join in. This sort of image from Revelation 5, this should bring us to our proverbial knees in awe and wonder. And yet so often from week to week, we come with our agenda and our expectations. And when they're not met, it kind of sours our experience a little bit, doesn't it? You know, some of you have, over the past number of months that I've been here, you've given me um, you know some gracious and thoughtful feedback, and I'm not talking about you. So please don't mishear me. Some of you, on the other hand, and I don't know this because I don't, I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm just knowing our hearts. I know that this is the way our hearts tend to operate. <laughs> um, that they can't even enter in. When you come in this place to worship, to sing, you can't even enter in because you're so focused on the details of worship. Whether the music was lacking passion, or maybe if it had too much passion, or it was lacking depth, or maybe there was that that one song had too many words that I didn't didn't understand. That song was too high, or too low, too fast, too slow, too emotional, too intellectual, too old, too new. I am convinced that in a room of this size, with nearly 200 adults present, that it is an impossible task. If if you were to say, this is the way it ought to be, there's going to be 500 others that are going to say, no, 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 that's not the way it's supposed to be. It becomes impossible to find a happy medium. And I'm convinced that if we actually somehow miraculously found a happy medium, we'd all be miserable because it would just be boring. It would be boring. The point is that we are to bring a heart ready to respond to God. A heart that can can be content, even if all of our preferences aren't meant, because it's not about us, it's about God. It's about God changing us through submitting to the process of what happens here. This is a few centuries old at this point, but... Here's a helpful framework. There's a guy, um, you might have heard of him, his name is John Wesley. He was a Methodist preacher, I mentioned him earlier. And in 1761, he uh, he wrote, um, he was a hymn writer, his brother was the more famous hymn writer, Charles Wesley, um, but he penned some of the most iconic songs that the church has ever known. But he also penned something called, um, I, it's a bit of an awkward title, but just bear with me, it's called Rules for Singing. Rules for singing, and I I, I think it's brilliant. The first time I read them, I was blown away. I thought, "This this is awesome," Um, and and it's a little archaic because, again, it was written you know 300 years ago. Um, But there's something really beautiful about um, kind of the heart that John was after here, and what it really was is he had a heart as a songwriter, as a pastor, as a minister. He wanted the church of Christ to think deeply on how we sing and what that does to us, and and all of the details therein. So if you look at them, there's just a lot to be gleaned. And so I want to go, I'm not going to go through all of them. I think there's seven or eight in total. I want. I just want to go through a couple this morning, a few. Um, and I think they help us when we think about what we're doing here when we gather. So the first one I want to go through is this. It says this. Sing all. See that you join the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, Take it up and you will find it a blessing. It's pretty cool. The lesson that I think we can learn here is that worshipping together is good for the soul. There is something beautiful and good that happens when we do this together as the body of Christ. That if you're the type of person that says, you know, I don't prefer to worship God this way, or maybe you walk into a gathering and and you've had a tough week, it's been a a challenging week, and, and you're just not interested in engaging... And you're not really interested in singing some frilly song to God? I think, we, I think he's kind of speaking to that. That our hearts are very rarely, if ever, bent toward worshiping God with all that we have. But Wesley says to press in. Press into that. Even if you don't feel like it. Even if your feelings are like, no, 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 I do not want to. I do not wish to engage in this right now. He says, press in. If you find it across take up that cross and you might just find that God meets you there, that God blesses you in that. I found that to be true. That's sort of that uh, aspirational idea that I was talking about a few moments ago that that we're not there. Like we read these words and we're like, I'm not there right now. But God, help me get there. The second one, this is my absolute favorite. He says, sing lustily. I think when I'm leading the music next week, I'm going to exhort you to all sing lustily. Um, to sing lustily and with good courage. Be, uh, beware of singing as if you were half dead <laughs> or half asleep. Some of you are like, oops. <laughs> but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. And I love, I love how like totally not PC that line is. <laughs> It's fantastic. I'm, I'm sort of envisioning if John Wesley were alive today, and I'm sorry for those, some of you have heard me rant on this before, so I apologize. Um, but it's, it's kind of like if John Wesley were here today, he, and he, he would like catch you singing Taylor Swift in your car at the top of your lungs, and he's like, you do sing, haha, you know? <laughs> and maybe a more multi generational example, maybe it's, maybe for you it's the Beatles, or, or, uh, Frank Sinatra, or, uh, Coldplay, or U2, or whatever it is. I don't think they're Satan. Um, (laughs) But what he's trying to say is if you can belt out those songs at the top of your lungs, why not on Sunday morning? Like, it's just kind of a paradigm shift that we have to grapple with. The lesson to be learned here is that it's okay to sing heartily and joyfully. In a lot of cases, people get this idea. You know, I, when I um, preached, I think it was in June, I was working through 1 Corinthians 14, and I had um, a couple of you come up to me afterward and tell me, um, yeah, well, us in the Reformed tradition, some of us accused us of uh, of being what we call the frozen chosen. And I and I and I I'd heard that before but I was reminded of it in that moment. And uh there's kind of this idea that uh you know we have to be very prim and proper and, and uh stand very still and do not do anything. And, and and I don't get that sense when I read through the Psalms and when I read through the life of David, when I read through uh the, the people that worship Christ. Um, I don't get that sense. She says it's okay to sing heart, heartily and joyfully. There is a biblical precedent for song and music that is filled with exuberance and joy. Sing with all your hearts. Don't be ashamed of your individual voice. It's our individual voices that join together as one. And so we need all of you, whether you are tone deaf or not. Next one is, sing modestly. So it's kind of like he tempers this a little bit. He says, sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation. And I'm guilty of this because I'm just, I have a loud voice, whether I have a microphone or not. So I have to sometimes, like, temper it. I think I heard, I think I saw someone looking back at me when I was singing when you guys, when we were, when we were playing earlier. Um, I apologize for that. I'm just loud. Um, so I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. Um So, uh, sorry, let me, do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one melodious sound. I love the sounds of that. That'd be a beautiful thing. The lesson here to be learned is that there is a balance from this previous guideline. Sing heartily, but modestly. If worship through corporate singing is about many individuals joining as one voice, it, it makes sense that one voice shouldn't distract. I was in Peru. This is probably going back about ten years, um, and I was at this uh, church service, and there was a woman uh, at the back of the church, and uh, she um, she had a tambourine in her hand. It was very distracting. Um, She would just shake it totally off beat. Um, And she would keep yelling like top of her lungs at any moment of quiet or silence or any little break in the song. She'd go, Gloria a Dios, which which means anyone know what that means? Glory Glory to God. (laughs) Gloria a Dios over and over and over again. And I'm like, ironically, she is not bringing glory to God. She was distracting from God's glory in that moment. The last uh, little rule for singing is this one. It's his last one. It says, Sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature in order to attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offer to God continually. So shall your singing be as the Lord will approve here and reward when he comes in the clouds of heaven. It's a beautiful idea. Again, this lesson is that we don't do this for us. Yes, God forms us and changes us and transforms us through our worship. But it is for God first and foremost. It is not about how good the band is or even how bad the band is, depending on where you are. Never at court right, but it doesn't matter how good the set list is or how terrible the set list, how many hymns were sung or not sung. Again, it is about the posture of the heart toward God. So this is just a little glimmer at how we worship. Hearts that are postured with an aim to please God more than anything or anyone else. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. With the Psalms, they were written several centuries before the, the life of Christ. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we have this unique opportunity several thousand years later where we get to um, look at the Psalms with Christ in mind. It's a really beautiful thing where we can look at a Psalm that has no mention of Jesus and look and say, how do we see Jesus in this Psalm? That we get to acknowledge that we sing not only of what God has done, but what God has done through Jesus that we praise him for his saving work on the cross, that we praise him for doing the impossible, putting us right with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. We praise him for saving us for our own sinful nature. It's uh, awesome and beautifully, uh, I'm not going to say coincidental, I'm going to say serendipitous, that, uh, that Brian Watson read from uh, Romans chapter 5, um, during our time of worship, because I have that same passage. We didn't plan that. It's beautiful. the Literally the exact same verses. But I'm going to read them again because I just think it is so beautiful and it just wells me up into worship to say these words. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is an incredible, rich truth that just spurs us on to praise him, praise him, praise him. This is the most praiseworthy truth in the entire universe. Psalm 150 Invites us, invites us not just into a Sunday morning of praise, not just into one day a week of praise, but a lifetime of praise—the sort of praise that informs every single part of our lives. So that when we go, so that when we go from this place here after uh, after we have fellowship with one another, coffee time, that we have this heart posture going on inside of us that infects how we work. Our time in school, how we treat our relationships, how we treat those that are difficult in our lives, how we approach every facet of our lives. It starts and it ends with praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, I I pray that we in this moment would be reminded of the incredible truth of all that you have done through Jesus and that it would spur our hearts to praise you with all that we have, that as we reflect on who you are, your nature, and as we reflect on all that you have done, your faithfulness that we would put our trust in you, that we would look to you for all that we have. God, help us to live this life of praise by the help of your Holy Spirit. Amen.